Liquor Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philemon M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Of all the issues our elected officials are fighting about in Albany, there is perhaps none greater than New York's controversial bail reform law. The policy, which took effect in January of 2020, eliminated the use of cash bail for most misdemeanors and some nonviolent felony charges in an attempt to ensure that no one would have to sit in jail simply because they couldn't afford to pay their way out. Bail reform has been harshly criticized by Republicans and even some Democrats who argue that these changes to our pretrial system are the main reason we saw a spike in violent crimes in 2020. One such Democrat is Albany County District Attorney David Soros, who says he was uninvited from testifying at a recent state hearing reviewing bail reform because of his public opposition to the law. He joins us tonight. Mr. District Attorney, welcome to Metro Focus, David Soros. It's so great to have you on. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. Absolutely. And so first, just so that everyone's clear, I was wondering if you could give us at least um your understanding or your uh, legal definition of the term bail reform, because we've heard it, I think, used and bantied about a lot, but everybody might not be on the same page. Well, I think you're right. I think oftentimes when um, people, regardless of where they stand on the reform issues, are talking about increases in crime and, and what's changed, I think oftentimes the issue is always pegged to bail reform. But it's really a confluence of all of the reforms that have been passed uh, over the course of the last three years that have given rise to what we're now experiencing in communities like Albany County, which is a dramatic increase in crime and violence, and more specifically, crime and violence as it relates to very specific communities. So it's not just bail reform. It's also discovery reform. It's also raise the age and a whole host of other reforms. So also, I'm wondering, is this something that you were always against from the onset? Or was this something where you began to change your mind as uh, time went on and you saw perhaps the changes in uh, the crime rates? Let me be very clear. There was no one um, who had a, a closer seat at the time to these changes as I was the, the, the then president of the uh, District Attorneys Association. And um, so we had an opportunity to review some of these bills uh, prior to the, their passage. And, and as a member of the association, we certainly could see uh, some of the benefits, uh, but we also saw uh, some of the dangers. And the thing that I continued to harp um, and continue to drive home for our leaders at the time was, look, uh, all of the positive things about these reforms are going to be undermined by the mistakes that we also see here. And um, and unfortunately, uh, these bills were passed 
Every year they've gone back to make some adjustments, uh, but not nearly enough to correct the issues that we still believe are, are responsible for um, the, in, the increase in violence today. Primarily, um, we're talking about the criminal justice system, a system mm -hmm. that deals with dangerous people, and yet judges who we elect are prohibited from considering dangerousness. Uh, the judges are also prohibited from considering community safety. And so those are the two primary issues that I think undermine all of the other value um, that these reforms may have may have brought. Well, so that's one of the things I was hoping that you could take us a little bit deeper into what you see as some of the problems uh, with this law. Okay, so take, for example, you know, at the very beginning, what they what the legislature did was they basically eliminated all misdemeanors from bail consideration. In other words, it was presumptive release. A judge couldn't even consider um, many of these misdemeanors for purposes of, of uh, holding an individual in. Well, in that entire class of misdemeanors, there were sex offenses, there were hate crimes, which then the legislature, upon their realization, um, went back and made corrections. But those corrections were not enough. Um, the, the idea that an individual who continues to go into a retailer and steal uh, merchandise and the only thing that you can take into consideration is whether the person is going to be punctual and return to court, but not take a look at this person's entire history. Um, maybe there are prior offenses for violence. The, the ability for a judge not to be able to consider it the inability of a prosecutor to ever even make those arguments um, has led to just recidivism. And so those are the issues that we continue to take issue with. Now, the idea that a person who is engaged in a nonviolent crime, uh, first time offender, um, sitting in jail, awaiting trial, I think we all agree with, with the principle that that person shouldn't be sitting in jail. But we're not talking about those individuals. What we're talking about are the career criminals that have benefited immensely um, from these reforms. And we would like the legislature to take a serious look at these issues and provide us with the opportunity in an audience to debate these issues. You also mentioned that uh, that the bail reform law has actually been detrimental to some very specific communities. And I'm wondering if you could expand or highlight exactly who you're talking about. Sure. So, for example, I think I, I think we we get mired into talking about statistics. Very often, it's one you know group citing certain statistics, and it's another group citing other statistics. And oftentimes, those numbers really aren't that far off. But I think it's misleading when we say, for example, Albany County, over the course of the last three years, has experienced uh, a thirty percent increase in violent crime. Now, those numbers are right; they're correct. But I think we we tend to um, we tend to spread those numbers across all communities, and that's just simply not true. The suburban communities here in Albany County they haven't experienced a thirty percent increase in crimes. The neighborhoods that have are the black and brown communities. Ironically, the very community that the legislature intended to benefit from these reforms. But what we're seeing is more violence. Uh, what we're seeing is is greater black and brown victimization. And that's really the only issue um, that I, uh, back a few weeks ago, wanted to address with, uh, with our legislators, and, and we were denied that opportunity to engage in that conversation. But again, it, when you hear about, for example, New York State having a 40-plus percent increase um, in crimes, 
we're not talking about that 40% affecting all communities equally. We're talking about uh, those increases happening in, in black and brown pockets of our communities. So then building off of what you're saying, though, um, I would have to point out that in those same last three years that you mentioned, we've also all been through the trauma of a worldwide global pandemic. And there have been several other states that have also seen spikes in violent crimes, also in poor communities, which we do know, statistically speaking, um, were hit harder by the impact of the pandemic, i.e. unemployment, job loss, uh, loss of all kinds of food insecurity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they also saw a similar increase. So is this bail reform or was this perhaps something more existential like the pandemic? I think it's, it's a brilliant question that you're asking. We have had the benefit here in the state of New York of being um, the, the national leader all throughout uh, the country of being the, uh, the largest safe state. And how did we do that? We, we were able to, to achieve those goals by being uh, tough on violent crime, but also smart about diversion. And so we've applied those principles all throughout and we've achieved record level uh, reductions in, in crime, improved public safety. We're also among the very few states that have been able to shut prisons down while other states have expanded um, their prison industrial complex. And so this idea that all of these changes are brought upon by, by COVID is just absurd. The, the, the reality is, the reality is, if you take criminals and you catch a criminal and then you're able to release that criminal, that criminal is going to continue to criminal, okay? They're going to continue to engage in this crime. New York State has lost population. I think uh, I think that's something that we're all struggling with. And so how does one explain how we've seen increases all across the board in crimes with a diminishing you know, state population? It's common sense that it's the same people who continue to commit crimes that we now apprehend, that we release, that are out there committing additional crimes. Um, and, and the other thing that I will say about the comparisons with other states, We've never been Chicago, Illinois. We have never been Baltimore, Maryland. We have never been LA. And the reason we've never been those states, because if you look at, at the, the numbers prior to COVID and you look at the numbers prior to reform, New York was always heading in the right trajectory when those other states, those other cities, all of whom have also embraced the same reform ideologies, mind you, um, we were always going in, in a different direction from them. So I'm glad you asked that question. Well, I do also want to touch on the fact that you were, as I mentioned in the intro, uninvited from testifying. And so I want to get into a little bit of the Albany back and forth. So bear with me here. Um, I understand that uh, you did release a written testimony. And in that you said that, quote, the immobilization of criminals isn't a isn't a critical part of public safety came to pretending that the earth is flat, i.e. assuming that people will or won't be able to show up for bail reform is just a ridiculous uh, assertion. And then I want to also add that Senator Jamal Bailey, a Democrat from the Bronx, um, who was also pre presiding over the hearings, responded saying that your testimony was, quote, offensive, pejorative, and condescending. Now, we only have about a minute left, but what is your response to that? What's offensive um, and really condescending 
is is changing the criminal justice laws in the state of New York, driving the state into the calamity that we are in at the moment and pretending that we're not in this moment. Um, it, you know, unlike Senator Jamal Bailey, who, by the way, I respect and admire, uh, unlike Senator Jamal Bailey, I'm the person that has to speak with victims. Uh, I'm the person that has to explain to people why, you know, the person that we apprehended um, is now out on the street. I'm the person that has to continue looking out uh, to protecting those individuals. And uh, this isn't about politics for me, uh, never has been. This is about public safety. And the reality is you can talk about numbers, we can talk about statistics, um, but at the end of the day, we're talking about real human beings who are really being harmed by these policies. And, and that uh, should invite great, greater dialogue. All right. Well, that's the note we're going to have to leave it on. But I want to thank, uh, as I said, Albany District Attorney David Soares for joining us tonight on Metro Focus to discuss the critical issue in Albany of bail reform. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Absolutely. When Spencer Schneider was a 29-year-old Manhattan corporate lawyer, he was invited by an acquaintance to attend a secret meeting of a group known by its members simply as school. Drawn in by its charismatic leader, he joined other highly educated and successful New Yorkers, but soon found himself trapped in one of the nation's most secretive and abusive cults. In his new book, a cautionary tale titled Manhattan Cult Story, my unbelievable true story of sex, crimes, chaos, and survival. He tells how and why he joined the cult and how he got out after 23 years. And we are very pleased that Spencer Schneider is joining us now to share some of these experiences with us. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us. Happy to be here, Jack. Thanks for having me. It is a fantastic book. It's one of those books where I, I think, quite honestly, if you didn't know from the beginning it was a true story, you would say, well, th this is interesting that someone would, would fabricate this story, but I can't imagine it really would have happened that way. We know it did. So given that quick introduction, let me ask you to start by explaining to our viewers who you were back then when, when you were 29. Quick, a, a brief, brief resume, if you will, of who you were. Sure. Jack, I, I grew up on Long Island, um, uh, you know, in a middle class family, uh, great parents who sent me to college, sent me to law school. Um, I started work in Manhattan with a, a fairly big firm and I was working, you know, many long hours, but I had a great, great friends, uh, you know, uh, successful life and was doing exactly what I wanted to do. When we think of cults, I think the first vision we all come up with are, are lost souls, wayward souls who have no supportive family, no direction in their lives. Clearly, that was not you when you were 29. That's correct. I, I had uh, everything I needed. I wasn't looking for anything. Um, and, uh, you know, if anything, um, you know, any kind of group or uh, or, you know, searching uh, concepts was was foreign for me. And I had no interest in anything like that of any spiritual nature whatsoever. So I mentioned the introduction and acquaintance kind of brings you into this. Give us a sense of it. it let's talk about your first meeting. Sure. 
What did it look like? What did it feel like? What was it about it that became attractive to you? Um, well, the first meeting of, of the group uh, was uh, extremely boring, I should say. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I was expecting, you know, um, an esoteric school, I was told, that met twice a week in Manhattan. It was meant to be secret because it's esoteric, that we'd be talking about um, two Russian mystics and their uh, ideas or cos cosmology, and that we could use these ideas as tools for our life to help us in our careers and our love lives and whatnot. And what I found was a very boring discussion that I didn't really follow, and I wasn't inclined to return. What was it then that drew you back in? Well, um, I, I promised the friend who invited me that I would do a one-month commitment. And so I held my nose and went back to a few more boring classes. But, but I suffered a, a, a crisis in my life, uh, which was that I lost my job. And um, when I went to class that evening, I found a lot of support and care, um, which I would not say that I would get from uh, my friends and family, not that they weren't loving and whatnot, but it was a special kind of interest in my well-being. When you experience that, and let me ask you again to give you a, give us a sense of, of the composition of the group. Who were sure. some of the people? I don't need names, but but essentially identities. What were they? Yes, that's a that I I, I should uh, add to the description, which is. Um, you know, there were other people dressed in suits and ties, men and women uh, in their late 20s, early 30s, who were, you know, well-educated uh, professional people. I was happy that there was no one in, in robes chanting and there was no sacrifices going on because I was afraid that it was a cult. It sounded strange and it wasn't something I was looking for. But there were folks just like you and I and, um, you know, lawyers doctors, uh, hedge fund managers, um, folks who went to Ivy League schools. I mean, the person who invited me was a very uh, established uh, young man, uh, Ivy educated, and I had no reason to uh, doubt that, you know, the, the group of people there would be similar to me. Goes back to what I mentioned before, and you talk about this. But in our minds, if you mention the word cult, we tend to think of of them, not us, right? And yet, you were surrounded by by us, by you, in in these meetings. So that's the initial phases for you. And again, I, I just want to underscore: the book is it's just it's it's fascinating, it's riveting, it has it it, it elaborates so much more on these stories. But just to give people a sense of it. How then did you find yourself becoming completely drawn into this? And what did you and the others end up doing as part of this cult? Sure. Well, I, I think the initial thing, like I say, that drew me in was the support and this community that I found of like-minded people who were also interested in, you know, improving their lives. And we used the tools of the, uh, of the uh, we called it school or the work, to sort of improve our lives. And people really felt like we were gaining more confidence 
And um, the people who led the group at that time were extremely helpful to us, um, uh, you know, in, in navigating, you know, your young life in New York. Uh, it can be very lonely and it's very hard um, uh, when you're just finding your way in, in life. So they had answers for us. Uh, up, up to now, this sounds like a, a wonderfully supportive group of professionals, as you said, young professionals in New York City, helping you navigate your life. It, at some point in time, this becomes far more sinister. It turns. Correct. And, the, the, and it, tell me how it turns. Tell me about this charismatic leader and what direction now it took you on, as opposed to the direction that you suggested early on. So it turned when they asked us to start recruiting other members, uh, other people, um, which involved a great amount of time. And it involved a, a method that was, frankly, you know, unethical because we were going about and befriending folks and trying to uh, create these, uh, you know, matters of trust with people, with strangers, really. And then, uh, you know, slowly lure them in to the group. And when we felt that they were, would be right for it in terms of, you know, their profile, how much money they made and whatnot, we would let them in on the secret. So it felt a little off. Give me a list, if you will, because again, that's far too extensive to, to get into all of it here. But give me a list of some of the things you then, you and the other members of the school found yourselves doing Oh, sure. which, which made this now this more sinister cult. Yes. So um, we we, we um, spent a great deal of time doing um, projects for the leaders. Um, uh, the main leader was Sharon Gans, um, and we helped build her home. Uh, we built the spaces where we worked in. Um, like I said, we worked on recruiting, which was hours and hours a week. Um, and um, we gave a lot of money also uh, each month um, uh, to her. Um, uh, you know, I estimate that uh, she earned about a million dollars a year in tuitions. She was right. a fortune. The, the member is called tuitions. You talk about, about instances of, of emotional abuse, of physical abuse, of sexual abuse, of ordered marriages, ordered divorces. This all came from the leader? Yes. Um, so the physical abuse, you know, we, we were asked to engage in boxing and we did these boxing matches, but they were very brutal. Um, and uh, we were told that this would be, you know, character building. Mm. But a lot of us got very hurt, um, including me. And we mm. were discouraged from getting medical help. Um, uh, I was in an arranged marriage. Other people were in, in arranged marriages. Arranged now, by the leaders of, of the cult. Basically, you were told some people get rid of your current wife you're going to, or husband. You're going to marry this person or you're going to be involved in an affair with this person. These Correct. are the directions you were given. Correct. And, and, and it was very coercive because, you know, by this time we were very, very uh, dependent upon the group. We found community there and we really admired the leaders. Um, and so when they asked us or told us to do things, we would often do it, even if they were against our own interests. So, for instance, you know, women were um, directed to have, uh, you know, affairs with other men in the group, which, you know, on reflection, looking back on it, that's coercive. And they weren't it's not a co co consensual thing. And people would do this. 
people would follow these directions, yes, in, including leaving spouses, engaging in other spouses. Let me ask you, I, 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 we could talk forever about this, but I want yeah. to read this book. So I, I've got about two minutes here, a little bit less sure. than two minutes. You were in this for 23 years. Right. How did you decide? When did you decide you had to get out and how did you get out? Sure. So I decided when I felt that, uh, you know, a betrayal by the leaders, uh, there were several instances where it was clear that they were doing things that were against my interest, getting interfering in my marriage, interfering in my work life, and it became untenable. And uh, although I lost uh, a lot um, when I left in terms of, you know, I was doing work with someone in the group and I lost my complete business. I was really having a nervous breakdown and um, I was at my wits end and I just felt I had nothing to lose. Uh, so I felt I had to leave, which I did. Is this cult still in existence? Yes, it still is in existence. The leader, uh, Sharon Gans, passed away about a year and a half ago of COVID. But um, the group uh, is led by four uh, people who are her acolytes and it meets in Manhattan. And I would guess there's a couple of hundred people who are still in the group. This is the first, th this book. And again, it's called Manhattan Cult Story, My Unbelievable True Story of Sex, Crimes, Chaos, and Survival. Um, it, it, it's the first time that someone has, has opened up the pages, if you will, on this cult. Um, last quick thing for you is how are you doing now? Oh, I'm great. Um, I, I got, um, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, psychological help. I saw a therapist, which helped me tremendously. And I found new friends and new interests. Uh, you know, I uh, discovered open water swimming. Yeah. I became a lifeguard um, and I uh, have a rich life. I have all the things that I wanted yeah. now that I was promised then. Right. And, and spent 23 years fighting against. Uh, Spencer, again, it, this is a fascinating story. And, and, and people should read this understanding that this is true. This is not something that came. It's not fictionalized. This is the true story. And again, as I said in the beginning, a cautionary tale for other people who will see themselves in you. Um, Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, good luck to you. I know you're doing some long form ocean swimming out there. Keep, keep safe. That's from one former lifeguard to another one. You keep safe and we'll talk soon. You be well now. Thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.